Welcome to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast by Endurance Leadership. Every week, we encourage you by interviewing an ordinary but extraordinary person about what I call their identity journey, and sometimes we even have a breakthrough coaching moment. An identity journey is the unique journey that you have taken in your life to get where you are right now. The discoveries about who you are, your true self, have played a part in your victories and failures. We take a look at that journey and glean valuable lessons that will inspire others on their journey to help them get unstuck. We believe that all lives are interesting and deserve to be celebrated, and we are looking for the gold in people's lives. My name is Ken Castrico. I own Endurance Leadership. I help people to become more powerful by helping them understand who they are. I serve my clients with one-on-one -on -one deep coaching that gets them unstuck. Let us help you find you. I know what it feels like to be stuck. I've been there before and I know the way forward. That's why I've decided to dedicate my life and career to providing deep coaching experiences that get results. Stuck people just like you have been coming to me for help for 20 plus years. And guess what? They aren't stuck anymore. I have a degree in communications and entrepreneurship from the University of Nevada, Reno. I love people and have been a student of people all of my life. I own Endurance Leadership, a coaching company where I coach people to get unstuck by digging deeper so they can experience breakthrough and gain confidence. This podcast is called, Who Do You Think You Are? Because knowing who you are can change the way you see your world and others around you. And that, quite literally, can get you unstuck. Today, my guest is Ashley Insinius. I met Ashley when I was the race director at the Kokanee Trail Runs in South Lake Tahoe at Fallen Leaf Lake in California. She was running the half marathon and was having a real hard time trying to finish the race. And not because she wasn't physically able to, but because she had just returned from Las Vegas one week earlier where she had experienced the terror of the mass shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival on October 1st, 2017. After helping her across the finish line and hearing her story, which she explains in detail in this interview, I was not only encouraged by her, but inspired by her willingness to finish the race and her immense courage. This is Ashley's life story. Her life is a series of ups and downs that she describes as a series of difficult and unfortunate events. But she is not daunted, nor has she given up. She always lands on her feet and continues forward. She is a strong woman and her story has many lessons, defeats, and victories and it is incredibly inspiring. So here is my Identity Journey interview with Ashley Insinius. Without further ado, here is my friend, Ashley Insinius. I have Ashley... Insinius. Insinius. Yeah. <laughs> here. I'm so excited that you are here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, you know... We've, I've talked to you a little bit about what this is all about. Right. And really what we're doing here is I interview people on this podcast. I interview their identity journeys mm -hmm. because I really truly believe that every story is important. Right. And my little saying is, you know, this is ordinary, extraordinary people's identity journeys. And what I really love about what we do here is that it really helps other people understand that their identity journey, they have one. Right. Some people don't even know they have one. Right. And I've had that happen on the podcast before where people have just been stunned 
like, oh my gosh, that's how I did find out about myself. <laughs> and it's just a great way for people to understand a premise that I have is that you cannot be successful in life in no matter what you do, whether it's money, if it's family, no matter what it is, you can't be successful unless you know who you are. Absolutely. So so that's really my, my thesis. But I really am excited to talk to you about that and we'll just get started. How about that? Yeah, it sounds great. Okay. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, is kind of your story, where you came from. Yeah. So I want you to go all the way back to the beginning. So go ahead. We're... <laughs> Where do, you, yeah. where do you come from? What's your story? So both my parents are originally from Montecito Heights in East L.A. in Southern California. And so after they got married, they moved to Duarte. And that's where I was born in Duarte, California. And then ended up moving out to Altaloma, California, which is now Rancho Cucamonga, California. Okay, yeah. But I spent a substantial amount of time in Montecito Heights at my grandma's house when I was younger. As, as often as I possibly could, I would try to get out there and just spend as much time with her as I could. She was like my favorite person in the world and my safe space. My dad was a firefighter paramedic for LA City. He just recently retired a, oh, a wow. couple of years ago. Yeah. And my mom worked a lot of part-time jobs while we were in school so that she was available to pick us up and drop us off from school, take us to all of our sporting events. I have two younger brothers. And so, you know, she was kind of single mom for a, a large portion of that with my dad's work schedule. You know, he worked anywhere from three to five days on full 24-hour shifts. And then he'd come home every once in a while and, and spend time with us. And my brothers and I always joked that, like, you know, it was great when dad was home. Things always felt a lot more relaxed and fun, definitely. But he couldn't be home for more than five days because if he was, then everyone's schedules just got way out of whack. And Because he was always gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different life, isn't it? It is a different life, you know, when you have somebody who's there and I always knew that I could call him if we needed to, if there was something that was going on or something exciting happened. You know, he was one of the very first people that I would call to share really great news with. And so, yeah, I mean, he was was home as often as he possibly could, but he also worked a ton to afford us the lifestyle that my parents worked really hard to have for us and provide us a lot of the opportunities that mm -hmm. we could have. Um and so, and provide us with opportunities that they never had as children. And so they, we are Mexican and Spanish. And mm -hmm. so growing up in that area, it's pretty tough. And my mom specifically was, didn't really have a whole lot of growing up. And so she kind of lived her life still in that kind of mindset of being very frugal, making sure that we worked really hard for everything that we got and then, you know, made sure that there was always a little bit extra just in case. And my dad worked really hard to kind of provide us all the opportunities that, like I said, they didn't really have. Right. And so during the summers, especially, or any holiday breaks, I, like I said, would try to go with my dad when he would go to work because he worked in Montecito Heights also. And so he tried to kind of give back to the community that he came from. And so as a firefighter paramedic, that was the area that he served, was the area that he grew up in. And so... Oh, he grew up there too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my grandma's house is across the street from an elementary school that's on Avenue 43 in Berenice. And that is like the heart of a really 
big gang that's down in that area. And so I was allowed to go to my grandma's house, but we weren't really allowed to go outside of her house. We could play in the backyard and we could go across the street to the school, but there were like parks nearby that we weren't allowed to go to just because they weren't necessarily the safest. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always felt the safest at my grandma's house. Like that's where I felt the most like love and the most joy. She taught me a ton. Like I would spend as much time as I possibly could just kind of learning from her. She taught me how to sew. She taught me how to cook. She did my hair, even though she had terrible arthritis and it was like really painful for her. But, um, she would do that. We would spend time together. She always had this like little library of of books and I loved reading and so I remember just always being so excited to go to her house and read and just be there. I loved the smell of her house. It smelled like jalapenos and like she would make salsa a ton so it smelled like jalapenos and downy softener. Isn't that crazy? To this day I bet you can. Oh yes. Like when I smell those distinct smells or in combination, oh my gosh, it just makes my heart so happy. It's just like, it's such a comfortable scent. But yeah, so I I loved spending time with her and, and she, I just loved all the conversations. Like she was always so excited for any little thing. Like she was the one I think that really taught me to celebrate the the small successes yeah like anytime there was something exciting that happened like I very distinctly remember I learned how to do a cartwheel in elementary school and I was stoked like just over the moon and couldn't wait to come home and call my grandma you know and this is back in like the early 90s so there weren't any like camera phones there weren't video chats like that wasn't a thing and so I remember running home calling my grandma and just being so excited and telling her, you know, I learned how to do a cartwheel. Like, I can't wait to show you. And I remember her telling me, oh, I have a special phone. So have your dad hold the phone up and do your cartwheel and I can watch you. Like, I can see it from my phone. And I was like, what? Really? And she's like, yeah, I have a, I have this special phone that can do this. Show me. And so in the living room of my parents' house, like, did this cartwheel as my dad, like, held the phone up that's, like, corded to the wall. So, yeah, and just did this cartwheel for her and remember getting back on the phone and she was just so excited for me. And we both just, like, celebrated that and talked about the day and... and then kind of hung up and, you know, I went about my day. But that was, like, something that she really instilled in me was just to um, really celebrate the small moments and to share those small moments with people that you love. She passed away when I was 14, so my freshman year of high school, and that was rough. Like, high school was very rocky for me after that. Yeah, it was just a really difficult time, and I still miss her, you know. Like, she wasn't there for my wedding or my graduation or like when I graduated my bachelor's degree that was something we talked about for a really long time and my master's degree as well like that was also something that we talked about often she was like you know you you're so smart and you are so kind and you are going to do so many great things and just stick with it you know like don't give up it's going to get hard but don't give up and so like that's always been in the back of my mind like she's that let's slow down here for a second because this is, it's huge because I can see it in your eyes. Yeah. It's huge. So I always like to ask this question, especially when you have a, a parent, their parents, or grandmother, or grandfather that was so interested in you. And we, we sometimes wonder, was your mom and dad just as interested or was it just special because it was 
It was your dad's mom, right? Right. What, what would you say about that? I think that my relationship with my parents isn't fantastic. And my relationship with my grandmother, I think, kind of created this basis of who I am today. And it really created the perspective that I have on life and the perspective that I have of others. I think my dad is very similar to my grandmother. I mean, clearly he was raised by her. Right. And my relationship with my dad was really great for quite some time. And he was really somebody that I shared a very similar type of relationship with for quite some time. Mm -hmm. He was the person that I went to to like ask questions and, you know, get suggestions. And like he taught me how to shave and he taught me how to do makeup. And he took me to, I was a swimmer in high school. And You so, were? Like, yeah. So was I. Yeah. It's, it's great. Except for, you know, like you have to start getting waxed when you're a swimmer sometimes. So, so like he took me to go do that. So like he... My dad was the person that I went to with all of my questions with in life, like boys, makeup. Interesting. And like he took me shopping for dance dresses, you know, for homecoming and prom and all of those types of things. If I had an interview that I needed to get ready for, I would take a picture and send it to him and ask him, like, does this look okay? Like, is there something different that I should be wearing? You know, and he was always really good and knew my style and knew me really well. Mm -hmm. My mom and I don't have that kind of relationship. Interesting. Um, it was always very combative and tense and didn't have the same sort of connection. And she wasn't the person that I felt like I could go to to ask questions about things. And, and that's okay. Right. And and for a long time, you know, that was, that was more than okay because I had my grandma and that she filled that void for me as far as like sure. mother figure. Right. And so I think like part of the reason why I felt so connected to my grandma is because she took on both the role of mom and grandma. You know, she was very upfront and honest with me all the time. Like if I was out of line, she was quick to provide me with some feedback around like, Mia, look, you that really wasn't the best idea. And that really wasn't nice. And maybe you should apologize, you know? So she taught me to take responsibility for my actions. She explained why those things weren't appropriate or weren't friendly. And that's something that I always really appreciated. I'm a, I need to know answers. Like I need to know rationale behind why I got in trouble for something or why something isn't being done in the way that I thought it should have been done. I need to have some rationale behind that for me to fully comprehend right. and accept it. You're just not going to take, don't yeah. do that. No, I'm so terrible at that. And like for my parents, especially, I think I was really frustrating for them because I would ask like, why? Why can't I do that? Like, why did I get in trouble? Why wasn't that appropriate? I don't understand. And I would get really frustrated. And I'm not one to just like sit back and be quiet and just, okay, fine. I'm in trouble and I won't do that right. again. Right. No, I'm going to keep doing it unless you tell me why it was wrong. Right. Or at least I'll still keep doing components of that. Right. Until you tell me right. what specifically was wrong with that. Exactly. Um, so in, in my family, that was seen as like me talking back, which was frustrating but yeah well great so i didn't mean to take you yeah. off track but i so, think that was so it's so very interesting and very crucial to your story right absolutely yeah 
So you left off where your grandmother passed? Yeah. So yeah, when she passed away when I was 14, that really was a, a huge, like, pivotal moment for me in trying to identify who am I really? And like, what purpose do I have? What does life look like after? And that was, that was a really trying time. Also, there was a lot of conflict between my parents and myself. And so at 18, those four years were really, really tough. And I struggled a lot with, did great academically, was a varsity soccer player, JV swimmer, was well known in my school, probably more so because my height than (laughs) anything else. But yeah, I... I just started losing motivation and I started losing sight of like purpose really and then really started butting heads with my parents during that time I think it's probably the case for a lot of people I'm sure but it just got to the point where like on my 18th birthday at 6 a.m. I decided I'm I'm done I don't want to live here anymore I can't do this this isn't healthy for me I was getting so stressed out from all of the conflict that I was throwing up every morning to the point where my mom swore that I was pregnant. I not ever, <laughs> like I'm not the Virgin Mary, so that is not a thing that can happen. So yeah, and so like she forced me to go to see a doctor and verify if that was the case. And it was one of the most violating moments for me also. And so like there just wasn't a lot of trust yeah. and there wasn't a lot of, we didn't things the same way. So like I said, at 18, I moved out. I lived with my aunt and uncle for a little bit of time in LA. They went through a divorce while I was living with them. So that was really interesting. And then for about a year, I moved back in with my parents. They were struggling with my youngest brother at that time. And so they had reached out to me and kind of said, hey, we'd really appreciate it if you could move back in. We're really struggling with Austin. We could really use your help. Like he looks up to you and he listens to you. And I needed a place to live also at that time. So I had to move back in. And again, like things were just a little bit stressful. I'm the only girl and I had always been the only girl until I was 13 on both sides of my family. Oh, wow. And we're Hispanic. And so there's a lot of double standards and that was the case. So like I, there was a lot of strict rules around when I could go out and do things, when I couldn't go out and do things. This is when you moved back. Even when I moved back. So I had to be home by like 9 p.m. And oh, wow. at this point, I'm like 19, maybe. And yeah, and then, you know, they wanted me to kind of take care of my brother, drive him to and from school and things of that nature. And they were coming to me often with asking me, like, you know, how should we discipline him? And I, I told them a couple of times, I was like, you guys do understand that, like, I very specifically don't have children for a reason. Like, this is your child. And I feel like, clearly, like, my way of discipline disciplining wasn't functional because when I would try to talk to you about the way that you were disciplining me, that wasn't appropriate. So I'm very confused as to why you're asking me how you should discipline my youngest brother. And so it was just 
an interesting year. I started dating someone at that time. He moved up here to Reno and I came up to visit him. I was going to do an internship in Northern Ireland for a year. And as I was up here, kind of saying goodbye to him and, you know, we were going to go on a hiatus for a year as I was out there in Northern Ireland, that whole trip kind of fell through. If I wasn't going to be enrolled in school, I wasn't going to be on parents' insurance anymore. And so I take medication daily and so I wasn't going to be able to do that and so I would lose those medical benefits and lose access to the medication that I needed and so yeah I was up here and that fell through I didn't want to live with my parents anymore I wasn't really taking classes at that time and so I was like you know what sure let's like we'd kind of been talking about the potentiality of getting married and I was like, it'd be great if we lived in the same state. That's maybe a good first move. Right. So yeah, I drove back down to Southern California, grabbed my belongings, put them in my little Saturn Ion, and then turned around the next morning and drove the eight hours back up here. And I lived with him for like a couple of weeks as I found my own apartment and then found a job around the same time. And then we continued to date for another five years. And then we got married. We were married for seven years got divorced. And that was an interesting time. Like I hated living in Reno for the first six years that I lived here. Really? It was terrible. Yes. And why is that? It was just a completely different environment than Southern California. Oh yeah. You know, much lower pace of life. Didn't know anyone up here other than my ex-husband. And then his parents moved up here a year after I did. And that was, those were the only people that I knew. And so Back home, I was very much involved in sports still. I was involved in my church. And so I had like a community that I was a part of. Mm -hmm. And when I moved up here, there was no community. And I didn't even really know who to reach out to, to try to find a community. Mm -hmm. And so I was like trying to just sort of have that community with him and his parents but they are all also very introverted i am not an introvert and so we just sort of stayed in and we'd make dinner together and that's about what we did and he was an introvert he was an introvert yeah, yeah. and so that created this weird sense of like an identity crisis because then at that point i was I no longer knew who I was. My whole identity was wrapped around mm -hmm. this man and his parents, right? And right. so, like, I was his wife when we eventually got married. Um, and I took a lot of pride in that. But I didn't have anything for myself anymore. Right. And I didn't have any real friends either. And so... I really focused on, I knew that like still my goal was to get my master's degree. And so I just focused on school and getting through school, worked a ton as well. And so that's sort of what I tried to use to keep myself busy and keep myself as this, like I've always valued my independence. And so that's sort of the direction that I kind of went is I'm just going to stay focused on school and find ways to like take classes. I went to the community college first up here and then transferred over to UNR after I finished all of my prerequisite courses. And then I, when I transferred to UNR, I ended up getting a really good job working at the university and I worked in the libraries there and I loved it. I was the 
the assistant to the dean of the university libraries. And that was a really nice, stable time. And that, that was, was UNR. UNR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was right, I got that job right after we had gotten married. And so it was stable. It was good. We had just bought a house also. And this was like a year after we had gotten married. And so I was like, you know, I think like things are going well. Like I have another year or so left at the university. We both have really stable jobs. We just bought a house. Like, let's try to start having a family. And he was like, yeah, no, I'm not having kids. Interesting. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. We had this conversation twice before we got married. Like I made sure that like these big things that we each wanted in our life as we built it together were both things that we were in agreement on, like getting married, buying a home, having children, like traveling, that those were all things that we both wanted to have happen. And they were agreed upon, like those are things that we both said we we wanted to do. So a year in, and he's like, yeah, nope, I'm never having kids. And I think a lot of that stemmed from right after we got engaged, his youngest, well, it was him and his brother. There were just the two of them. His brother got into a really bad car accident and rolled his car five times. It burnt, started burning. He burnt 95% of his body and had third degree burns. And some of them went all the way down to the bone. They had to care flight him out to Sac State, to the burn unit out there. When we saw him in the ER here at Renown in Reno, they told us to say our goodbyes because they didn't think that he was gonna make it on that flight over. And we, so we did that. As we were in there saying our goodbyes, he was kind of crashing. And so they started cutting open all of his limbs to kind of help with the circulation of oxygen. And so that was the first time that I was diagnosed with PTSD from that event. And so they care flighted him over. He was in the burn unit for five weeks. That was the first time you... Me. The first time I was diagnosed with PTSD was from that particular From that, event. okay. Yeah. Wow. So they... So go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. And so he was in Sac State in the burn unit for five weeks. He had seven skin grafts during that time. They amputated his left leg and his right arm and eventually like they were all surprised that he had made it that long and eventually he ended up bleeding to death on the last skin graft that they attempted and that was just days before his 21st birthday and so his accident was due to him driving home drunk right before mother's day in an effort to get home to wrap his gift that he had gotten for his mom Hmm. because we were gonna have brunch that morning And I think that for my ex-husband, his agreement to having kids or his yes to having kids was in large part because his brother loved children and wanted like six or seven of his own. Interesting. And so I think that he was really relying on his brother to kind of help provide that support for him. And when he lost his brother, that was a really really big loss obviously that was you know it was his best friend they did a lot together here in town and yeah it was just it was a difficult space to kind of move through and we had just gone engaged right before that accident had happened 
we had already booked the venue and booked like a couple like other things, you know, like the DJ and I think the photographer at that point. But I had asked him after this had happened, you know, after the funeral and things had kind of, we were back up here in Reno and things had kind of settled down a little bit. I had kind of said, you know, let's maybe put this on hold. Like if we're going to spend the rest of our life together, like there's no need for us to rush into getting married. We can take some time to just process this and just sit in the crappiness that this is. Like this isn't easy for any of us that are involved. And so he was like, no, 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 we already like have things set and you know, he would have wanted us to get married. And so he really wanted to kind of push through and go through with marriage. And now looking back, I, I really wish that we we would have held, maybe off. held off for another year. Interesting. And I think that if we held off for another year, we probably would not have gotten married. And that maybe would have been a, a good thing. But yeah. that's not what happened. That's right. Wish we could go back sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So that's a huge, really, in your life up to that point, out of all the things you've been through, was that probably one of the hardest? It was, I think my life has just been a series of events, difficult and unfortunate <laughs> events. Yeah. But that was definitely one of the key moments for sure. That really kind of, again, was another pivotal moment, right? So during those five weeks that he was in the hospital, I would grab his parents' clothes, bring them home, do their laundry, cook some meals for them for the week. And then my ex-husband and I would drive out there, drop all those things off, you know, take their mail out to them, you know, see if there was anything that they needed and come back. And when we got divorced, that was something that my ex-husband had brought up. He was like, I really just felt that I owed it to you to marry you because you had done all of these really great things for my family and I felt that I owed you because you had done those. And I was so hurt because I just felt like whether we chose to like break up in that, that time frame or we chose not to get married, like, or if we had broken up prior to that and I had heard that this was something that your family was going through, I would have still shown up for you. I would have still done the same exact thing because I loved you and your family. Like that is, I would have done that for you regardless. And I didn't want anything in return. Interesting. That was probably the most hurtful thing that was said when we got divorced. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot that went on during that time and neither one of us really worked on processing that. Because once Andrew's death had kind of we had done all of the logistical parts of mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. We just kind of got back into life right away and got back into planning the wedding. And that was coming up a lot faster. And so neither one of us really took the time to grieve. Neither one of us really took the time to process the heaviness of that loss. Andrew was one of my best friends up here. He was probably the only other person up here that hated Reno as much as I did. And so that kind of created this bond. And it was like having a brother up here when my two brothers were back home. And so he was equally my friend as well. And not to the extent that he was my ex-husband's best friend, but that was my only friend here. And so that was a big loss for me as well. Sure. And so 
I didn't realize the magnitude of that whole scene until a couple months later, probably eight or nine months later. I just like kept getting these, I thought I was having heart attacks. I would get these like really intense heart palpitations. I would start losing my vision. I would start hyperventilating and I just felt like my whole body was just so heavy and I I couldn't control myself. And like, it felt like everything was just blurring around me. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the doctors and I explained what was happening. I was like, am I having a heart attack? Like what's going on? And so again, like that was the first time that I was diagnosed with PTSD and told that it was an anxiety attack. And I was like, oh great, so what do we do about this? And they tried like different medications. They were not helpful. They actually made those panic attacks worse for me. And I just kind of kept pushing through like, okay, that's not working. We're not gonna use those medications and we're just gonna keep going. And at this time, like things were pretty tight financially. You know, we were putting all of our money towards this wedding and I, I didn't really take the time to see a therapist. I went a couple of times to a therapist on campus because it was sort of impacting my academics and I didn't really feel a connection with that therapist. I'd been in therapy throughout my life, like started when I was in fourth grade and just like here and there would go and would kind of get some like talk therapy and it was never really all that helpful for me. So I... I and, and would you say it's because some sometimes in the coaching field, mm-hmm. people are paying usually a bit more money. Yeah. They're not paying co-pays. They're paying money. Right. Coaching usually deals with the, they can deal with the past. Right. But coaching is really about the future. Right. So you have to almost figure out some of your past stuff. Right. And in coaching, it actually can happen. It doesn't mean it can, it doesn't always mean it should because right. sometimes we need therapy. Right. But I Sometimes what I hear the complaint about therapy is, and it's not always deserved, I right. get this, but sometimes the complaint about therapy is you sometimes can go for years, months or years, and not really even know right. what it is you were actually there to overcome or, or haven't overcome. Right. You kind of stay in it. Right. Is that, you think that's true? I, I definitely think that's true. I've always been an advocate for therapy. Yeah, me too. It just wasn't one... I have a hard time trusting people sometimes, especially in that particular type of setting and being mm-hmm. vulnerable. Right. That's definitely something that I've learned in more recent years and something that I have kind of embraced in more recent years. But back then, I was still living in this idea that if you showed that you were vulnerable, if you showed emotion, it showed weaknesses. And so I wasn't really opening up and providing opportunities for these therapists to really identify areas that were of a struggle for me mm-hmm. to kind of help me through those. And two, with typical like talk therapy, I don't think that was really helpful for me, largely because I already perseverate on thoughts by myself. Like this is just a thing I'm really good at and it's not right. fantastic, but I would think about these things all week long Mm -hmm. until I was going to go see my therapist. And then I would talk about it again while I'm talking to my therapist. And that constant talking about it wasn't helpful. Wasn't moving you forward. Right. 
It was so, just keeping me stuck. Before we go any farther, really briefly, I want you to explain the difference between talk therapy. And I'm really glad that we're getting into this because yeah. part of your identity and and I and I know this to be true because of my own experiences as well, but and I've seen it many, many times. Part of part of our identity is in, uncovered in these these things, coaching, therapy. There's there's all kinds of things you can do. Right. And I know from us talking that you, you've you experienced some of these things. So right. explain briefly what talk therapy is. So talk therapy is just when you go in to see a therapist. This is probably the most common type of therapy mm-hmm. that I think most people interact with. And you, you select a therapist, you go in, and you sit down in a chair in their office for, you know, 50 minutes, and you talk about whatever it is that you're there to get some help for. And from my experience working with multiple, like just talk therapists in the past, I never really received any ways to manage the thoughts that were showing up for me or coping mechanisms to use when these thoughts were occurring. It was just a space for me to speak about what was happening in my life and what I was struggling with and why it was a struggle. And then they'd agree and I think try to validate those feelings and thoughts. And, you know, can be helpful in that you have an unbiased third-party person who is willing to take the time to sit and listen That's right. to what is going on. Right. So what did so you you're in this marriage, you've had therapy before mm-hmm. and now because of this dramatic event now, so you went into talk therapy. So what what happened? You had that breakthrough. Did you have a breakthrough to figure out oh, I need to do something else? No, that didn't actually come until after my divorce but yeah so i just kind of lived with that just kept going and Mm -hmm. you know hustled through i also was an athlete in the 90s and so like that was what was taught like you just don't attend to the pain you just keep going and you work through the pain yeah plow through it yeah exactly because it'll go away sure yeah or or because they have no evidence that it ever goes away but it'll go away it'll it'll You'll get numb to it. Yes, at the right. At very least. Right. Yeah. And so that's really what it was. It was just me numbing to the pain that I was feeling. Right. And so as our marriage progressed, the first three years were fantastic. And it was everything that I wanted. Actually, the first four years was everything that I was hoping a marriage would be. We, we had a really great partnership. Things were pretty solid. But there was this underlining issue of not fully communicating and not fully being vulnerable about what was happening and he slowly started drinking to cope and manage with that loss and manage that yeah. hurt and that sadness and everything that he right was feeling and so that just progressively got worse in the last three years of our marriage was it was really difficult the drinking had gotten far, far worse to the point that he wasn't even really coming home oftentimes. He worked like a, a really early morning shift. So he would come home at two, take a shower and then leave at three for work sometimes. And with this history of his brother having rolled his car driving home drunk, that was constantly a concern of mine. And so I was constantly trying to call him like, I just want to know if you're alive. Can you just let me know if you're alive? And there were times when I sometimes would just get up and drive 
where I thought he would maybe be to see if his car was like in a ditch on the side of the road rolled over. Interesting. And so that was causing a lot of like anxiety for me as well. And I was finishing up my degree. um, And then I had also just gotten into, got accepted into grad school. And that I think was just like the final straw for our marriage. He was frustrated with that goal of mine because it took me a long time to get my bachelor's degree. It took me almost 10 years to get my bachelor's degree. I paid for most of that in cash, which meant that I could only take two or three classes at a time if I was lucky. Plus I was working three or four jobs. And then when I got into grad school, I was working almost five jobs. And five jobs, five jobs. So like three, two internships and then three, two part-time, one kind of full-time job that were paid and going to grad school and trying to be married. <laughs> and it just got really difficult. Financially, we were struggling. He refused to get a second job. He was working one job that was four tens. So he worked Monday through, th- or Tuesday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he just like refused to get another job to kind of help out. And so I ended up taking out student loans during that time to kind of help with the finances also. So you got all this stuff. Yeah. It's piling on. It's piling on. It's getting great. And then it just kind of, we went out with some of his friends and it was finally a fun time. We like had a really great time. And I remember driving back home and he was like, tried to start a fight. And I why are we fighting like that? This is the first fun night that we've had together and I don't even know how long. Like, let's just relish in the fun time that we had. Like, we're both a little bit buzzed. Like, this can be an even better night. Like, let's just get home and, like, let (laughs) this be a good night. And, no, that wasn't the case. Like, he just wanted to keep having a fight and he got to a point where we got home And he was just, like, nagging, like, on me about, like, trying to start this fight. And the fight that he was trying to start was that he was telling me, oh, so you got into grad school now, so you think that you're better than me. And you think that you're smarter than me. And you, your friends think that I'm stupid and I'm not good enough. And that had never been a thing that I'd ever said that any of my friends had ever commented on. That had never been something that had ever been brought up previously. And so, yeah, that was just a crazy, like, thing that was showing up. And so I tried to talk to him about it. I was like, that's not the case in any way, shape, or form. Like, I'm going for this degree because this has been a goal of mine since I was five. And this is something that we talked about when we first started dating. So it's not like this has changed at all. But he was still in the same job that he had been in since we had gotten married so there had been no real change for him in that seven years and so there was just this like contention and then he started getting I I told him like look I'm gonna go take a shower because we were in a smoky bar I feel gross I need to be up at like five the next morning because I one of my five jobs that I need to get to I start at like six so I need to just go to bed at this point So I go in to take a shower and I just didn't want him to continue to follow me. So I went in, closed the door and I locked it and things just went from bad to worse from there. He like 
came in, he punched down the door, I'm in the shower, he's yelling and screaming at me, and I'm just continuing to take my shower and not attending because I it very much was attention maintained. And so I was just trying to like finish up and get out and we walked out and he just starts like throwing things and he starts talking about how he's gonna leave and he's done, like everything's over. And he starts trying to pack up his truck and my two dogs and I are just trying to like give him space to do whatever it is. But also I'm also a little bit terrified for my safety and for my dog's safety. And yeah, and then he refused to leave because then he was like, well, if I leave, then you can like have claim to this house and then I don't have things. I don't know. It was interesting. So we kind of lived in that for a little bit longer. I should have just left at that point. Looking back, I should have just picked up and left, but I had no money and my parents and I weren't really talking at this time either. And so I didn't really have anywhere to go. And I was really proud and I didn't have friends really either. And so I I just, again, just was powering through. And then a couple months later is sort of when he asked for the divorce. And we had kind of started talking about, you know, maybe trying to go to couples counseling and stuff. And I went to a conference for grad school and came home and he was like no I, I just want this divorce like I don't want to try counseling I'm just done I want to be done and I was like okay I guess and in the back of my mind I felt like why is this happening I'm not really understanding what's going on because we had had this whole conversation and I thought things were getting better I had talked to him a little bit about like I think there might be a problem with the drinking. Let's maybe try to get some help there too. And then just kind of had this like gut feeling that like he might be having an affair. That might be a thing that's happening too. And so kind of did some research and realized that yes, that is actually what was happening. He was having an affair. He had apparently been having an affair with a couple of different women for like the last three years of our marriage. And so when I realized that, I was actually really thankful that that was something that I found out because that gave me license to then leave. Like, right. yeah. Oh, perfect. There is no trust left here. And trust is the foundation right. of relationships. And so, sure, like, I will take care of this divorce. I will find a lawyer and I will get the paperwork done. And this will be done and over with in no time. And so, yeah, so it took, like, three months for us to go through the paperwork. There was some, like, contention, but not really a ton. It was pretty amicable. We, we left with what we came in with and paid off some of the stuff that we had acquired together, sold our house, split that. And then, yeah, just sort of went our separate ways, like filed the paperwork Friday at 5, 8 a.m. the next Monday. It was done. It was done. So let me ask you a question. On When you look back at it, and there's a lot of clarity, obviously, looking back. Right. Would you say that he had a really hard time understanding who he was? Oh, yeah. And do you think stuffing and all of the things, all the things we go through in life, right? if they're not dealt with, they get in the way. Right. Now, I kind of look at it as layers. Right. You know, it's like tectonic plates and the, the magna. The core is who you are way down here. Right. Man, as soon as something gets pressed down and you don't deal with it, you learn how to do it. Yeah. And you learn how to do it again. And again and again, 
And when it really comes down to it, this, you know, probably a great guy. Yes. Is is so does has so lost. It yes. would take a jackhammer feels like 20 years to be able to get down to the core of who someone is. Yes, like and that was a thing, you know, and it was a comment that I had made towards the end as we were like sitting down to sign the paperwork to finalize our divorce is that like I didn't know this man that was sitting in front of me anymore. Interesting. Like he wasn't the man that I had originally fallen yeah. in love with. Right. And um, because that man was kind and compassionate, yeah. so intelligent, like never in a million years, like he didn't have formal education, but anything that he was interested in, he would yeah. research. Yeah. So, and he was very articulate. Do, do you think that you understood who you were? I think I had a better understanding of who I was and I had a better understanding of my deficits and like where Interesting. I was lacking so I could at least acknowledge that like so you yeah, were aware. I'm not showing up great right now. Yeah. You were aware. Do you think that had something to do with your grandmother? I think so. I think because my grandma would call me out all the time when I was younger. You Isn't know? that interesting? She's, she was really good at like, what are you doing, Ash? Yeah. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. What, yeah. Did you think that was a good decision? So, so, you, so you had this, you know, seven-year relationship, which is, you know, it's, it's tragic in a way. In other way, obviously, it's a lesson. It's a, oh, yeah. it's, it's it's a, a school. It's a great learning opportunity. I mean, yeah. yeah. Right? So what happened next? So we got divorced and then it was this whole year of me just figuring out who I am. Wow. Right? Like, because I, for those 12 years that he and I were together, I was so wrapped up in being his girlfriend and his wife. And I was a student and going to school, but like, that's all that I had. That was your identity. Yes. And I... That's not who I am, really, you know? And I'm more than just someone's partner and more than just a student. And so I really started looking at, okay, I was happiest with myself when I was really active. You know, I played club soccer. I, I played varsity soccer in junior high and high school and was always considered myself as an athlete. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of myself. And so... I wanted to kind of get back to that, but I didn't know where to find that here in town. And so to be completely honest, like I did something that I didn't think that I would ever do, but I got onto a dating app <laughs> and I just started interacting with a wide variety of men that because I, I didn't know who I was at this point. And I was very transparent and honest with them. Like, I'm just coming out of a divorce. I 100% don't want a relationship. I'm probably not going to sleep with you. And, like, I just kind of want to meet people. So... Did guys like that? I mean, some of them. Some of them were, like, cool with the transparency around it. Some of them, I think, saw it as a challenge. So they stuck around of course. for that challenge. Of course. Yeah. And then... But, yeah. So I... But through that, I really got to see what Reno had to offer. And that's when I really started loving Reno was after meeting all these different guys. So I learned about like 
the spin community here in town. I learned about the running community, about hiking. I learned about trail running. Yeah, I just, like, I learned about, oh, and the soccer community. I learned about the outdoor community through one guy and the indoor community through somebody else, you know, and so. So you used dating to fall in love with Reno. Yeah, to fall in love with Reno and myself. Right. And so that was really fun. That's so great. Now, Now, is this pretty shortly... This is right around where I met you? Yeah. So this is right before you and I met. Okay. Yeah. So that year, I started running again because through our, like, divorce, I would come home. He'd already be drinking. I didn't really want to, like, be around him. He wouldn't move out. And so I started running as a coping mechanism. Like, I need to just get out of this house because I really want to punch you in the face. And, like, that's just not worth me going to jail over. So (laughs) I'm just going to go run. And so I started running, and I really enjoyed it, found that there was a strong community of runners here in town, started doing some spin as cross-training, was actually doing fairly well, and then saw these back-to-back half marathons up at the lake that just looked like a great opportunity and a great experience. So Saturday was the Flume Trail, and then Sunday was the Kokoni, and so I worked really hard to train so that I could compete in both of those. And so I was just so excited, like had run a half marathon down down here in Washoe Valley. And that was the first marathon that I had, or half marathon that I had ran. And I felt strong and I felt confident and I was so happy with like who I was. Really like looked back over that past year and I was like, dang, Ashley, you really like showed up. Like you went through some really crappy yeah. things. Yeah. And like you came out of it better, like stronger, fitter. Right. And I was just so excited. Do you think that you got do you think you dealt with the insecurities, the lack of identity? Did you your true identity? You think you dealt with that while that was going on? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that like the interactions that I had with these men honestly like because I could kind of show up differently with each of them Mm -hmm. I could kind of test like is this who I want to be that's good is this who I want to present myself as is this me being true to who I am and so with each one of those interactions I really got to hone in on who I want to be and what I want to be about and what things I am passionate about. And so, yeah, like I I felt like that year and getting back into being an athlete and doing all of these different activities really helps me kind of get back to who I am and and what I'm most proud about. And then, so I had trained for these back-to-back half marathons, super stoked about them, feeling confident, feeling excited. My parents call me, a week and a half before these races. And they're like, hey, we're going to go to this concert down in Vegas. We'd love for you to come. It's going to be a whole, like, festival. It's, like, three days. Come down. You will pay for the tickets. You can stay with us. You just have to pay for the flight down. I was like, okay, great. And so I flew down, and the festival is fantastic. It's so much fun. I'm, like, really loving my life. I, like, had this conversation Saturday or Sunday morning with my parents and I was like, you know, I'm I'm just so happy with my life right now. And I'm so proud of who I am and like what I've done. Mm-hmm. And I 
just, I'm loving this life that I'm creating for right. myself. Right. And that night was the mass shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Festival. Wow. And again, another pivotal moment <laughs> when life just sort of went upside down. And yeah, I, that whole event was crazy. It felt like hours. I think it was really only 20 minutes. I really haven't gone back to like rewatch anything or read newspaper articles. Like the one time being in the middle of it was more than enough. Maybe in years to come, that might be something that I go back to, but not right now. And so I, through that, I got disconnected from my parents. It took us four hours to finally come back together and, and find each other after. You didn't know they were alive or? No, I didn't know for the first three hours if they were alive or not. So, and I, and I worried about that largely because when it was happening, my parents, my dad was yelling at me to like, Ashley, I need you to leave. I need you to just run, get out of here, get to safety. Like, I'm fine. I'm gonna stay here with your mom. My mom was sitting, so I was facing the stage, and we are like 100 yards, 150 yards away from the stage. I'm standing up. My dad is to the right of me, and he's facing to my left. And then my mom is sitting on the ground, and she's trying to like stand up. Both of her knees have been messed up. She's in a wheelchair, so she's trying to get into the wheelchair. She's also trying to grab all of our belongings <laughs> as this is happening. And my dad is standing there and he's telling me, Ashley, I need you to run. Like, I just need you to get out of here. I need you to get to safety. Like, go, run. And I was like, Dad, I'm not going to leave you. Like, I can't leave you. Like, that's not a thing that I can do. Like, we're all going to get out of here together. I'm here and I will help you. And my mom is yelling at both of us and she's like, just leave me. Just leave me. Like, both of you get out of here and get to safety. And my dad and I, like, in that moment, look at each other, and we both kind of chuckle because we're like, there is no way that we are leaving you because if you make it out of here alive, we will never hear the end of this. Yeah. Like, our lives will be hell on earth for the entirety of our lives if right. we leave right. you and run. So, no, we're definitely not leaving you. Also, we just can't leave you. Um, so we'd gone with some family friends. He told our family friend's son, like, just grab her hand drag her out of here. I don't care if you have to throw her over your shoulder, like get her out of here now. And as we're having this conversation, there's a person on the backside of my dad that I watched get shot. And my dad's alive because that person got shot. Otherwise he would have been in line for that. And then on the other side of my, there's another person who's running away from the stage coming towards us and they get shot. So I watched two people get shot on either side of my dad as he's telling me that like, I need to get out of here and I need to just leave them. And so these are the last images that I see of my dad before our family friends grab me and pull me out of this venue. And so in my head, I'm thinking, I left my dad and these two people died on either side of him. And now there are no other shields and he's going to be next or my mom is going to be next and so that has always been and still is something that I like am trying to like cope with and this is a thing that shows up for me fairly often because also the other thing is if those people weren't there my dad would have gotten shot 
if my dad wasn't there, then I would have gotten shot or my mom would have gotten shot. And so that is just a thing that shows up. Like these people are the reason why I'm alive. And so that really was difficult. And like as we were running out, as we were trying to like get to safety, not knowing where my parents were, what was going on or anything like that. And then finally being able to hear that they were safe. And then it just took another hour or so for us to all meet up. And then we were together in the hotel room for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. I found an earlier flight and I just like needed to get out of Vegas. I like needed to just get as far away as I possibly could. So got on the flight, came back home. And for the first week, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm not okay, but I'm just going to like go through the motions of everyday life. And at some point, this is probably going to hit me. But if I don't leave my house, I'm never going to leave my house. Like, because everything outside felt dangerous. That uh, that venue yeah. was an outdoor venue. Your security is now gone. Yes. And so like every place is dangerous. And if there are more than three people in any given place, it is dangerous. But I knew that like, I again, like, Going back to the way I've coped with things in the past, like, you just keep pushing through it. Just keep going. And so I just sort of did that, and then I ran those races. And, and that's, that's when it hit. That's yeah. when you met John Trent. Yes. So John Trent, oh, he's such a lifesaver. I love John Trent. So that race, the flume race was easier because it was on a trail, and it was all dirt and pine needles. The Coconia was way more difficult because half of that in the first half of it was on asphalt and the asphalt coming up and hitting the back of my calves just brought back a ton of like PTSD sort of memories. Yes. Of running away from this venue in the streets of Las Vegas and bullets ricocheting behind me on the asphalt and spitting up the asphalt on the back of my calves. And so that was really hard for me for a while and I remember going to like the aid station at mile six and like I felt so bad so if this guy is listening I'm so sorry that I acted this way towards you I felt really bad for years but I went to him and I was like so when are we getting back on a trail because I thought this was a trail race and it is not really a trail race right now and he was like oh you still have another like three or four miles and I lost it I was like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Three or four, like, so I'm like trying to like talk to myself, but I'm like talking to him as I'm like trying to convince myself to keep going. And part of me is like, I may just ask you to put me in the back of your Subaru and drive me back down to the finish line. Like, I cannot do this. Like, this, I am going crazy. Like, I this is out of control. I, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to finish this. But then also... I was in this space of, if I don't finish this race, then that shooter steals part of my joy, and he's stealing part of my life, and then I'm just adding another life that he has taken, and I can't let that happen. So I need to continue. Like, now my goal is just finishing. I just need to cross the finish line. Maybe it won't be there when I get there. That's fine. It might be here. I might be out here all day. And then also around this time, I heard that there was like a bear on the trail too. 
And so I was like, you know what? Fine. Listen, bear. I, you could, you could have me. Let me be your snack. I will keep others safe. That is fine. Just eat me. Take me out of my misery. Keep you occupied while the rest of the runners come through. Like, this is fine. And so I get past that portion. Sorry. And I get to the last aid station and John Trent is there and I am struggling and I I'm feeling defeated and I'm feeling so confused about like what life is going to look like now and knowing that like I'm not okay. This is a, a really telling moment for me that I am not okay and that it's maybe going to be a hot mess for a little while and I need to figure out how to move myself through this and John Trent was at the end and he had just come off a, a DNF from I think Silver State maybe the week before or something not Silver State I can't remember what it was but I think you're right yeah so I think he had just come off a, a DNF and he is there and he sees me I'm I'm the last runner but they waited you know and I appreciate you guys doing that and he came up to me and he's like, you only have like a mile and a half left. Like you're almost there. You've got this. Walk it, crawl it, whatever. And I was like, I don't know if I have it in me, honestly. Like, can you just put me in your truck? Like, can I just help you load up the rest of what you have at this aid station? And can I just be done, please? And I, we're like walking and talking at this point. And he is like, yeah, that's absolutely something we can do. And he like tells me about his ENF and he's like, that's the thing that, that you can choose to do and I support that. And also you are so close to crossing that finish line and I think that you can do it. And so I just disclosed to him what that week weekend prior was for me and why I was struggling and I just started crying and he gave me just the best dad hug that I needed in that moment. And he was like, you are so strong and I'm so proud of you for coming out here and for not letting him take this away from you, for still showing up. Like this is testament to your strength. And again, like you can choose to not finish and you can also choose to cross that finish line. He's like, I think you've got it. You've made it this far. This has definitely been a difficult day. It's been a difficult week for you but they're waiting for you at that finish line if you choose to continue and I was like okay here we go and so I like started on a half jog for the last like mile and a half of that race and then you were there at the finish line and I just remember I don't remember anyone else I know there were a few other people mm -hmm. but I remember coming up and over the to come into the the finish line shoot and you just started running up to me to run with me through the finish line and I just remember you telling me like you did it you're you did it you made it like we're so proud of you great job and I just remember your face I don't remember anybody else's and you and and John both were just phenomenal and integral people to me moving through that event because you each checked in on me and reached out 
through Facebook and asked how I was doing. You know, John wrote an article about me and that race and that interaction. And yeah, I I think that I, I wouldn't have been as successful if it weren't for the running community to move past wow. that whole event. So wrapping up here. Yes. And I know there's more. Yes. So I, what I want to do is, and, and I know you've been through a lot more after that. So after that, what was your journey? And I, and, on, and every time I, I really truly believe it's identity journey. Right. Because no matter what you're doing, you're really trying to get to the core of who you are and having all these things. I mean, it just feels like an uphill battle. Yeah. Everything's just trying to. Yeah. So the stronger that we get, and I think there's, there's obviously tests that we pass in our life. Or don't pass. Right. When you have that happen to you and you have this incredible breakthrough. Yeah. But what did you do after that? You know, you talked to me a little bit about some therapy and then how that wasn't, but you found some other things. What are those things to help yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like what was most helpful for me is during that time I was in grad school and I had done some work with in grad school with acceptance and commitment therapy. And Steve Hayes is the founder of acceptance and commitment therapy. And he is a professor at UNR and in the behavior analysis program. And so I was struggling. I didn't really work on it for about, it didn't hit hard until like eight months later. I knew that there were going to be problems. And so I was very empathetic and, and compassionate with myself and gave myself some leeway. But I saw that it was impacting my day-to-day life. And so realized I, I really genuinely needed some help. And so I reached out to Dr. Steve Hayes and I asked him for some references or referrals on um, ACT therapists here in Reno. And so I started seeing Dr. And that's ACT? ACT. Yep. ACT. So Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Okay. And Slightly different than talk therapy. Right. It's very different than talk therapy. So ACT is a behavior analytic approach to therapy. And it is based on six principles that can be used, shown on a hexaflex. And it is present moment awareness, values, committed actions, selfish context, diffusion, and acceptance. And so these are are processes that you can use to create a more psychologically flexible person. And so I reached out to Dr. Sandra Georgescu here in town and started working with her. And we really just started with, okay, let's talk about what your values are. Like, what are the, the things that are most important to you. And so we established my, and then that really has been the compass and what has been the leading force in all of the years that I choose to engage in. Your values. My values, yes. So like some of my values are time. I value time and it's a resource that's limited. I've seen that through the shooting, but I've also seen this, you know, with my grandmother's death. And, you know, so time is limited and I want to use my time here wisely. And time spent with people that I love and care for are is equally important. So staying connected is another value of mine. And so 
these are really things that we talked about often in in ways that I was able to kind of come back to in an effort to um, either choose to stay in the environment or at an event that I was at or make the choice to leave if gotcha. that wasn't in service of my values and the person that I wanted to be. That's that's so great. It's interesting too because through our conversation today, and I just want to thank you. Thanks. You, you sharing, although very therapeutic, is tough. Yes. To relive all this stuff again, and I really appreciate that you did it with me. Thank you. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that'll be helped from it, like you, you may never know. Yeah right? You just never know the impact you have. So one of the questions that I always have is on purpose and values. And I think that's just so great. Yeah. I have a question for you. And that question is, what is your definition of success as it stands right now? Because I know it'll probably change. Yeah. It always does. <laughs> but what is, your, what is your definition of success right now? I think my definition of success is living life authentically and living life in service of the values that I've set. Um, so not allowing for myself to be pulled in a direction that isn't in line with those values and isn't in line with who I am at my core, but be, staying true to like my authentic self. Yeah, And I think that is being successful because we live in a world right now where I think that's really difficult. There's a lot that is out there that's kind of telling us we should be a certain way, look a certain way, speak a certain way. And so it's easy, I think, to sometimes get lost. But coming back to my values and staying true to those and constantly questioning, you know, when I come into a difficult situation, asking myself, like, if I choose to show up in this way, is that in service of my values and like who I want to awesome. be That's so and good. does it help me move forward yeah. in achieving yeah. this person that I yeah. want to be in my life and how I want to show yeah. up. That's so good. Well, I have something I want to end with. Yeah. Okay. And it's really interesting when I hear someone's story and I hear their, the thread, when I hear a story, there's always a thread that I get. And that's, if you notice, I've been kind of jotting things down right. and everything. So I just, it, the woman that you are, how powerful you are, you are going to affect so many people's lives. And I, I see somebody who at a very young age had a mentor, mm -hmm. which there's a lot of people these days just don't have that anymore because the teachers are gone. Right. There's no more teachers. And right. your grandma was that teacher. Right. And you are so very powerful because of what you were able to have as your your grandmother, mm -hmm. it is instilled in you so many amazing things where you are able to have awareness that just is, you probably get commented about a lot about your awareness. I do. You, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it, it shines through everything you do. Every single high that you've had and every low, you're incredibly aware. Mm -hmm. That is going to serve you so well in the future and the people that you have around you and your profession. And what is it that you do right now? <laughs> well, so I have a master's in behavior science. And so I have some expertise in organizational behavior management, training new yeah. staff. Um, and 
recently I was in a corporate recruiter position. I really loved that opportunity Mm -hmm. of really just kind of reaching out to individuals, getting to know what their career goals are Mm -hmm. and matching them with a position within the company. Awesome. So yeah. Well, I just want you to know because (laughs) of the things you've gone through, um, you know, you, the tragedies and the ups and downs. I don't know why you're not a coach. <laughs> My therapist would also love me to be a coach, but like maybe this is why I got laid off. Like... I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you <laughs> have this thing, this intuitiveness about you that can see the gold right. in, in situations where there is no gold. And so uh, I just want to speak that into you because you're going to help a lot of people. Thank you. With your heart and who you are. And then when I saw you at the race, and I was the race director for that race right. for many years, and it's still a fond memory in my mind. It is still, it's forever indel- It's forever there. I can't, I can <laughs> go back to that moment and strength that you showed. And there's going to be a lot of people that look up to you and that need you. Thank you. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It has been an opportunity. It's been a joy. It's (laughs) been a joy. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This has been a great experience. Yeah. Will you come back on? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because I wanna I wanna know what's going on. We'll have you back. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, that'd be great. So we are so excited that you were here today. Thank you again. This has been a great pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Ashley, for being willing to share your life with us. I cannot wait to have you back. Thank you so much for being so transparent. I love the way that Ashley keeps moving forward even when life pushes back. One of the takeaways that I got from Ashley's story was the way that she handled her anxiety. I know firsthand how hard it is to deal with severe anxiety and her ability to work through and get the help she needed was incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being here today. Thank you for listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast. I hope you had some kind of a breakthrough moment while you listened today. I love when people get an insight that can quite literally change the way they think and behave. If you want more of this or want to learn more about my community, go to endurancelead.com. That's endurancelead.com. Until the next time, this is Who Do You Think You Are podcast. My name is Ken Castro, and I want to thank you for listening. If you found this podcast inspiring, please follow the pod and leave a comment.